Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come now with humble hearts to receive your holy word. Speak to us through your servant and give us understanding by the power of your Holy Spirit. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please open your Bibles now to our sermon text, Deuteronomy 4, 44 through chapter 5, verse 7. You'll find this in page 150 in the Pew Bibles. As I said earlier, we're beginning a brief series looking at the Ten Commandments. So Deuteronomy chapter 444 through 57. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Arar, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all of the all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel. The statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. While I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This morning, we begin this new sermon series uh, following Pastor Ron's uh, previous practice of preaching on the Ten Commandments, starting out the new year, right, even though it's not quite the new year. And while Christians traditionally look to the Ten Commandments as a central summary of the Bible's moral teaching, a place to go to instruct us how God desires us to live, our culture has been steadily drifting further and further away from this solid foundation. And we see the negative effects of that all around us. In 2014, two atheists published a book in which they created a modern, secular alternative to the Ten Commandments. In fact, they called them the Ten Non-Commandments. Here's their list of Ten Non-Commandments. Be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. 
Strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. The scientific method is the most reliable way to understand the natural world. Number four, every person has the right to control their body. Number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Number six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Number seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Number eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Number nine, there is no one right way to live. And number 10, leave the world a better place than you found it. Now this list of theirs, it captures fairly well the moral code of many people today. Did you notice it's full of contradictions? First of all, these aren't actually non-commandments. They're all commands. They tell you what to do. And then the ninth non-commandment contradicts the rest by saying, there is no right way to live except the other nine non-commandments, which say, here's the right way to live. Do these things. These contradictions, they reflect fallen man-made morality. But this morning, what we are studying, the Ten Commandments, they come from the Lord Almighty, our eternal God. As he thundered them from the top of Mount Sinai, they are a summary of his eternal moral law. And the fact that these, they come from God, it is particularly clear because this year we start at the beginning. In our next two sermons, we'll look at the first commandment, But even before we study that, this morning we must look at what comes before the first commandment, what is commonly called the preface to the Ten Commandments. You saw it in Deuteronomy 5, 6. It's also in Exodus 20, verses 1 to 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the preface. Now, sometimes when you read a book, you can just skip the preface, and it's not a big deal. But you can't do that here. Often today, the Ten Commandments are printed without the preface, but that is a grave mistake. You can't understand the Ten Commandments without the preface. This introduction is of such importance that Orthodox Jews, they actually call it the first commandment in the way they number them. That can't be right, since there's no actual command here in the preface. And that means they have to later combine two of the commandments to get to the number 10. Lutherans and Roman Catholics combine the preface with the first commandment, which often causes it to be neglected. It's either shortened or not even printed when they list the Ten Commandments. I think our Reformed tradition gets it just right. This is not a commandment, but it is an essential element This is the preface in which the Lord introduces himself, who he is and what he has done before then giving the Ten Commandments as a covenant for his people. Without this, the commands just float freely. Without this, they become some sort of abstract legal code. But that's not what they are. The preface makes clear that this is a covenant document in which the Lord reveals himself and he speaks to his people 
in a redemptive, in a historical context. And so with that understanding, with that introduction in place, let's look at the preface this morning as a window through which we see who the Lord is and what he has done for his people as he gives the Ten Commandments. So first we'll see this morning that the Lord is the covenant king, and second, that the Lord is the redeemer of his people. In each part this morning, we also see how Christ, when he comes, he is for us the new covenant king and the new covenant redeemer. So first, the Lord is the covenant king. This morning, I've already read from the two places where the Ten Commandments are recorded for us in the scriptures. They're originally given uh, by God himself on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. But then they are later restated by Moses to the next generation as they are about to enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 5. In both places, it's stated explicitly that this is not just a list of arbitrary commands, but rather God is making a covenant with his people. We read it in Deuteronomy 4.13. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to keep. That is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Now, scholars have noted that in giving this covenant, the Lord follows the customs that were common in those days in the ancient Near East. This covenant follows the same patterns as the treaties that we still have records of today, the treaties that were made in those days when a powerful king made a covenant with other rulers that were subject to him. Often rulers he had recently conquered in war, and he would then establish a peace treaty with them. Now, the Ten Commandments, it follows those same patterns, and yet it is also unique in so many ways. It is unique in that this is not a covenant made between men, but between the one true God and his people. And so there's nothing else quite like this. Now, following those patterns, all those covenants, they begin with a preamble, a historical prologue, which recounts the background, all that has led up to this treaty. It identifies the parties involved. Most of all, it introduces the great king who is the Lord of the covenant. And clearly, you can see that in the preface here in chapter 5, verse 6. It is that historical prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, just before this, the Lord has also shown himself to be the glorious king by the way he entered the scene, by the way he descended on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke and trumpet blast. This is then followed by the stipulations of loyalty to the king. Now, this was the most important part of the ancient covenants. The king required respect, subservience, and naturally, he would also always require payment of tribute. That's something we don't see here in the Ten Commandments. And of course, he would say, you cannot serve, you cannot make agreements with any other kings, any other nations. Now, this corresponds here in the Ten Commandments to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, you also know that here in the Ten Commandments, it is so much more than that. As we'll see in our coming sermons, this is the commandment of love. It's not just the negatives have no other gods, but it positively requires a love for the Lord. And that's something that's not seen in any other ancient treaty. Next, every ancient covenant, it had its 
sanctions, promises of blessing if you obey, and penalties, punishments, curses if you disobey. We see this most clearly in Deuteronomy 28 with its many rich blessings for, dis, for obedience and the ultimate penalty for disobedience, which was being exiled from the promised land. Now, the ancient treaties would then call on all their pagan gods to witness, to solemnize the covenants. Now, the Lord, the one true God, he doesn't need to call on any other witnesses. And yet, in Deuteronomy 30, 19, heaven and earth are called to witness to the covenant. And then finally, every covenant, it must specify how the treaty text is to be kept, how it is to be preserved, how it is to be read publicly so that it is remembered by all the people. For the Ten Commandments, we see, first of all, that the Lord, he gives two tablets written on stone by the very finger of God. And many have speculated that there were five commandments on each tablet, or some even say four, the first four on one and then six on the other. And I think this is completely missing the point. In ancient times, when a covenant was made, there were always two copies, one copy for each party, just as when you sign a contract today, you each get a carbon copy of the contract. So here we also have two complete copies of the covenant on two stone tablets, the Lord's copy and Israel's copy. And both are to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant, which is then put into the Holy of Holies in the Lord's tabernacle where the Lord's presence dwells. Now those tablets, they are the originals. But of course, all of Israel was to know the commandments. They were to learn them. They were to meditate upon them so that they might be careful to keep them. And then they needed to teach them to their children so that they too might keep them and on and on it goes. That's why we see the way Moses instructs them here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Now this is counterintuitive, what he says here, because now he's speaking to the second generation. They weren't actually there on Mount Sinai. They weren't born yet. So when he says, not with our fathers, he's speaking poetically here. Because the Lord literally did make a covenant with their fathers. But now that generation has passed away. They perished in the wilderness. His point is, when God makes a covenant, it goes from generation to generation. And now to this generation, Moses is saying, you must take ownership. You did not literally come out of Egypt but the Lord is your Redeemer. He is your God, and this covenant is for you. And you must keep it. You must keep the Lord's commandments. Notice also how all the commandments, it's not as clear in English, but all the commandments are in the second person singular. They are addressed to you personally. They are personal. They are not abstract principles. They speak to you directly. The covenant passes down from generation to generation. And now this covenant, it has come down to you today, to God's people, for all of us who are gathered here today. Now we will consider 
what's changed under the new covenant. But these commandments, they all still apply to us today. They are still for you, and you are to keep them. Now, when the Lord introduces himself in the preface, note how he uses his covenant name. He says, I am the Lord your God. And when you see those small caps in your Bible, Lord in small caps, you know that he is using his covenant name, Yahweh, the name by which he was specially known by his covenant people, Israel. When Moses had come to Mount Sinai the first time, the Lord sent him on the mission to bring Israel out of Egypt. And at that time, he asked the Lord, who should I say sent me? What is his name? And the Lord responded by giving this name, Yahweh, and revealing its deeper meaning. He said at that time, I am that I am, Exodus 3.14. Who is the Lord? Here he reveals, I am that I am. He reveals that he is being itself. In saying, I am who I am, in the present tense, God is saying, I, he does not become. He does not come to be. His, cha- his nature does not change. And so in saying this, he reveals that he is eternal. He is unchangeable. In speaking this way, he reveals that he is not defined or determined by anything outside himself. In other words, he is self-existent. He is self-determined. He defines and determines everything else that exists. He himself is not defined or determined by anything or anyone outside of himself. He is who he is. But then he goes on to say to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Exodus 3.15 And so the self-existent, self-determined, transcendent God goes on to give his name in terms of his covenant relationship with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't depend on anything or anyone else. And yet he has voluntarily chosen to bind himself by these relationships, by the promises he has made to these creatures, these sinful human beings that he has set his love upon. And that's the same incredible thing that we see here in the preface to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God. The Lord uses this covenant name that reminds his people both of his transcendence, but also his covenant faithfulness. And he pairs it with another reminder. I am your God. You are my people. It was because the Lord was keeping covenant with the patriarchs that he revealed himself first to Moses that first time on Mount Sinai. And now he has kept his promises. He has brought them out of Egypt back to that same mountain. And now he is establishing this covenant with his people as their covenant king. And in response, what does he say? He calls them to keep covenant with him. I have kept my promises. I have always been faithful. Now keep my covenant. Obey my commandments. As you know, we now live after the coming of Christ. And so we must reflect on how his coming has changed our relationship with the Ten Commandments. These past two Sundays, we reflected on Christ's birth, how he was born 
a king, how he lived as a king, how he conquered death through how he conquered through his death. And even now he continues to reign as the ascended king above. And so let's reflect for a moment how the Lord, just as the Lord God is our covenant king, so also Jesus came as the covenant king to inaugurate the new covenant with his people. We see this already when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Clearly, it's a reference to Mount Sinai as he declares, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And yet there on the mountain, he preaches with authority, even as the Lord had thundered from Mount Sinai. And then he goes up on another mountain. Soon after that, the Mount of Transfiguration. And the disciples behold his glory revealed as his, his face shines. And Jesus there, he speaks with Moses. And the Father himself thunders from heaven and declares, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Clearly, Jesus had come as a new and better Moses. He is the final authoritative word of God. And then the book of Hebrews lays out most clearly how and why that old covenant, the covenant of Moses, had to be fulfilled, had to be superseded by a new and better covenant in Christ. And so we read in Hebrews 8, 7 through 10, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ came to do, to fulfill the law of Moses, to establish that new and better covenant. He comes to be our new covenant king. But notice what it says is new, what is better about this covenant. It's not that there are no longer moral obligations. He doesn't suspend the Ten Commandments. You are still required to obey them. And if there is any doubt about that, they are repeated in the New Testament to make it clear. The difference isn't that the Lord no longer calls you to obedience to his commands. But notice what it says here is new about this new covenant. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit, who Christ pours out in great measure on his people in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit who indwells each and every one of his people. He indwells each of you, brothers and sister, as God's holy temple. Under the old covenant, the two tablets we saw were placed into the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, later into the temple. But now, under the new covenant, you are the temple of the living God. 
for the Spirit dwells in your heart. And so it makes perfect sense that he would write God's law on your heart. It is also that Spirit who sanctifies you, who works within you, and helps you to keep God's law. And so we've seen, first of all this morning, the Lord is the covenant king, and Christ comes as our new covenant king. Second, this morning, the Lord is the redeemer of his people. That's the emphasis in the second half of the preface. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And here we see the grace and mercy of our God. Remember how he did it. He brought them out through bringing curses upon Egypt. The mighty works, the wonders of his ten plagues, especially that final one where he struck down the firstborn of Egypt, but he passed over the houses of his people because they took shelter under the blood of a lamb. It's only after saving his people out of slavery that he makes this covenant with them. It's also helpful to remember that by the time they got to Sinai, Israel had already rebelled multiple times against the Lord. And he continually he continued to patiently show mercy to them. He continued to show them that he is a gracious and merciful Savior. At the edge of the Red Sea, with Pharaoh's army bearing down upon them, they cried out, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Exodus 14, 11. And then after the Lord miraculously delivers them through the Red Sea on dry land, it doesn't take long for them to forget the Lord, to begin to grumble. We have no water. So he gives them water. Then later they have no food. They grumble. We have no food. Then again, they have no water. And each and every time the Lord provides for his people. By the time we get to Deuteronomy, where we're looking this morning, when Moses is addressing the next generation after they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of so much sin, so much rebellion, he summarizes it this way. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Deuteronomy 9.24 Things were so bad when they worshipped the golden calf that Moses needed to intercede on Israel's behalf so that the Lord did not utterly wipe them out. But what we see again and again is on one hand, the depth of Israel's wickedness and sin and rebellion. And on the other hand, how the Lord responds with grace upon grace. The Lord covers it all with his incredible mercy. The Lord did not choose Israel because they were more righteous than other nations. They had no track record of obedience. The Lord knew that they were stubborn, that they were stiff-necked, that they were sinful. And yet he redeems them out of slavery. And they understood even this was a picture of their redemption out of slavery to sin. It was only after his redemption that he gives them the Ten Commandments, that he calls them to obedience to him. The law was God's good gift to his redeemed people. And what was its purpose? The Lord instructs a father to explain it to his son in this way. He says, first, tell him the history. Explain the Lord's delivery out of Egypt. Explain and tell him, your son about all my mighty works and only then say and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive 
as we are this day, Deuteronomy 6.24. In other words, the Lord set his people free and he wants them to stay free, to enjoy the blessings of their freedom. The law is for our good. It's for our preservation. But there is a flaw in the Mosaic Covenant. As we get to the end of Deuteronomy, we have the sanctions, the blessings for obedience, but also the curses for disobedience. But after this, we see a prophecy. Israel will not be able to keep this covenant. We read this in Deuteronomy 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Now, certainly you see a promise of restoration here. But first it is saying, the curse will fall on you. You will go into exile. You will be scattered among all the nations because you will not be able to keep this covenant. And this gets to the flaw with the Mosaic covenant. Well, yes, it is gracious at its heart. Obedience was required in order to maintain the national blessings that were included, the blessing of the land. Now, personal salvation for each Israelite was always by faith alone, through grace alone, according to the promises that God had given to Abraham. But for Israel as a nation, obedience was required to maintain their place in the promised land. And for such a sinful people, this was impossible. This would have been impossible for any people. And in this way, Israel as a people in the promised land, they repeat the story of Adam in the Garden of Eden, they disobeyed and they were cast out. And that's why something new, something better was required. And that's why we have the promise from Jeremiah 31, which we read earlier as it was quoted in Hebrews 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is the promise that is finally fulfilled with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For just as the Lord redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt, our Lord Jesus Christ came to redeem us out of a greater bondage. He came to redeem us once and for all out of our slavery to sin and death. And we saw how Israel was redeemed out of Egypt as they sheltered under the blood of a lamb, an actual lamb. But when Jesus came, John the Baptist saw him. And he declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. When he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, we read in Luke 9 that he was discussing with Moses and Elijah. And what were they talking about? They were talking about the exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. For in his death, his exodus. Christ accomplished a greater exodus than Moses. As it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He accomplished what the exodus was pointing to all along, a greater deliverance out of our spiritual bondage to sin. 
And so in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.7. Jesus Christ is the new covenant redeemer of his people. He has brought us out of slavery. He has brought us out of bondage. But there's one more thing that he accomplishes in his death. He establishes the new covenant. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. How Jesus Christ has come to fulfill. He has come to surpass all that has come before. And the key word all throughout the book of Hebrews is the word better. Jesus Christ is better in every way. Christ offers a better hope in a better country, with a better possession, through better promises, based on a better sacrifice, shedding the shedding of Christ's better blood, and all this is centered in the hope of a better resurrection. But the real centerpiece of Hebrews is that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, Hebrews 7.22, the eternal covenant, Hebrews 13.20. What does this mean? That Christ is the guarantor of a better covenant, But today, a guarantor is the person who puts up collateral for a loan. If you default, if you are unable to pay, your guarantor will pay for you. They will make it right. But in this context, Jesus is saying, if my people ever fail to keep this covenant, if they disobey in any way, charge that to me. I will pay the price. And here we see the stark difference between the two covenants. For the covenant made with Moses... It was sealed with the blood of bulls and calves. I cannot take away sin. And that, in the ratification ceremony, that blood was sprinkled on the people as they made the vow. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Exodus 24, 7. But they failed to keep the covenant. And so just as the blood was sprinkled on them, the curses of the covenant fell upon them. But now in the new covenant, Jesus Christ is the guarantor. He has sealed it with his own blood. And so as he said at the Last Supper, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood, Luke twenty-two twenty. This new covenant does not depend on your obedience, but rather on the perfect and finished obedience of Christ who perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments, who perfectly obeyed all of God's law. He has already guaranteed, he has sealed the new covenant with his blood. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended. His work for you is finished. And so you can rest assured of his redeeming love. And then certainly, he calls you, he calls all people to obedience. It follows the same pattern as before, as Paul puts it in Galatians 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our obedience is always a response of gratitude to our redemption in Christ. He has set you free from sin so that you might no longer be a slave to it, so that you might no longer live in sin. And so now under the new covenant, we have a new relationship to the Ten Commandments. 
you believers still obey God's law out of gratitude. But you no longer have those curses of the covenant hanging over your head. Why? Because Christ bore those curses in your place on the cross. He has already suffered the punishment. And there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to live in fear if you slip up. Then some punishment will come crashing down on you. Christ has borne it all on the cross. And so now you take your sins to him and you know there is always grace. There is always forgiveness in Christ. All that remains then is a joyful and a thankful obedience in response to all that he has done for you. And so, brothers and sisters, live in gratitude. In gratitude to the one who has redeemed you. Live in obedience, not because you are earning your salvation, but because he has set you free and you want to enjoy the freedom that he has given you. And so I ask you, do you know the Lord as your covenant king? Do you know the Lord as your redeemer? If so, then you will respond with grateful and joyous obedience to him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ our new covenant king, our new covenant redeemer. We thank you that he has laid down his life as our Passover lamb. He has borne the curses of the covenant so that he might set us free. We thank you that he has established the new covenant in his blood so that we have nothing more to fear from sin and death. And so we praise you and we give you thanks. Help us now to live in grateful obedience out of love for Christ, in response to all that he has done for us. Grow us ever more and more in obedience. Grow us in the fruit of the Spirit that we might live in response lives of, of, of obedience to him. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.